Chapter Thirty of the Monastery by Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. You call it an ill angel, it may be so, but sure I am among the ranks which fell, tis the first fiend e'er counselled man to rise, and win the bliss the sprite himself had forfeited. Old Play We must resume our narrative at the period when Mary Avenel was conveyed to the apartment which had been formerly occupied by the two Glendinnings, and when her faithful attendant, Tibby, had exhausted herself in useless attempts to compose and to comfort her. Father Eustace also dealt forth with well-meant kindness those apothems and dogmata of consolation which friendship almost always offers to grief, though they are uniformly offered in vain. She was at length left to indulge in the desolation of her own sorrowful feelings. She felt as those who, loving for the first time, have lost what they loved, before time and repeated calamity have taught them that every loss is to a certain extent reparable or endurable. Such grief may be conceived better than it can be described, as is well known to those who have experienced it. But Mary Avenel had been taught by the peculiarity of her situation to regard herself as the child of destiny, and the melancholy and reflecting turn of her disposition gave to her sorrows a depth and breadth peculiar to her character. The grave, and it was a bloody grave, had closed, as she believed, over the youth to whom she was secretly but most warmly attached. The force and ardour of Halbert's character bearing a singular correspondence to the energy of which her own was capable. Her sorrow did not exhaust itself in sighs and tears, but when the first shock had passed away, concentrated itself with deep and steady meditation, to collect and calculate like a bankrupt debtor the full amount of her loss. It seemed as if all that connected her with earth had vanished with this broken tie. She had never dared to anticipate the probability of an ultimate union with Halbert. Yet now his supposed fall seemed that of the only tree which was to shelter her from the storm. She respected the more gentle character and more peaceful attainments of the younger Glendinning, but it had not escaped her, what never indeed escaped woman in such circumstances, that he was disposed to place himself in competition with what she, the daughter of a proud and warlike race, deemed the more manly qualities of his elder brother. And there was no time when a woman does so little justice to the character of a surviving lover as when comparing him with the preferred rival of whom she has been recently deprived. The motherly but coarse kindness of Dame Glendinning, and the doting fondness of her old domestic, seemed now the only kind feeling of which she formed the object, and she could not but reflect how little these were to be compared with the devoted attachment of a high-souled youth, whom the least glance of her eye could command, as the high-mettled steed is governed by the bridle of the rider. It was when plunged among these desolating reflections, that Mary Avenel felt the void of mind, arising from the narrow and bigoted ignorance in which Rome then educated the children of her church. Their whole religion was a ritual, and their prayers were the formal iteration of unknown words, which, in the hour of affliction, could yield but little consolation to those who, from habit, resorted to them. Unused to the practice of mental devotion, and a personal approach to the Divine Presence by prayer, she could not help exclaiming in her distress, there is no aid for me on earth, and I know not how to ask it from heaven." As she spoke thus in an agony of sorrow, she cast her eyes into the apartment, and saw the mysterious spirit, which waited upon the fortunes of her house, standing in the moonlight in the midst of the room. 
The same form, as the reader knows, had more than once offered itself to her sight, and either her native boldness of mind, or some peculiarity, attached to her from her birth, made her now look upon it without shrinking. But the White Lady of Avenel was now more distinctly visible, and more closely present, than she had ever before seemed to be, and Mary was appalled by her presence. She would, however, have spoken, but there ran a tradition that, though others who had seen the White Lady had asked questions, and received answers, yet those of the House of Avenel who had ventured to speak to her had never long survived the colloquy. The figure, besides, as sitting up in her bed, Mary Avenel gazed on it, intently, seemed by its gestures to caution her to keep silence, and at the same time to bespeak attention. The White Lady then seemed to press one of the planks of the floor with her foot, while in her usual low melancholy and musical chant she repeated the following verses. Maiden, whose sorrows wail the living dead, whose eyes shall commune with the dead alive, Maiden, attend. Beneath my foot lies hid the word, the law, the path, which thou dost strive to find and canst not find. Could spirits shed tears for their lot, it were my lot to weep, showing the road which I shall never tread. Though my foot points it. Sleep, eternal sleep, dark, long, and cold forgetfulness, my lot. But do not thou at human ills repine. Secure there lies full guerdon in this spot for all the woes that wait frail Adam's line. Stoop, then, and make it yours. I may not make it mine." The phantom stooped towards the floor as she concluded, as if with the intention of laying her hand on the board on which she stood. But ere she had completed the gesture, her form became indistinct, was presently only like the shade of a fleecy cloud, which passed betwixt earth and moon, and was soon altogether invisible. A strong impression of fear, the first which she had experienced in her life to any agitating extent, seized upon the mind of Mary Avenel, and for a minute she felt a disposition to faint. She repelled it, however, mustered her courage, and addressed herself to saints and angels as her church recommended. Broken slumbers at length stole on her exhausted mind and frame, and she slept until the dawn was about to rise, when she was awakened by the cry of, Treason! Treason! Follow! Follow! which arose in the tower, when it was found that Piercy Shafton had made his escape. Apprehensive of some new misfortune, Mary Avenel hastily arranged the dress which she had not laid aside, and venturing to quit her chamber, learned from Tibb, who with her grey hairs dishevelled like those of a sibyl, was flying from room to room, that the bloody Southron villain had made his escape, and that Halbert Glendinning, poor bairn, would sleep unrevenged and unquiet in his bloody grave. In the lower apartments the young men were roaring like thunder, and venting in oaths and exclamations against the fugitives the rage which they experienced, in finding themselves locked up within the tower, and debarred from their vindictive pursuit by the wily precautions of Mysie Happer. The authoritative voice of the sub-prior commanding silence was next heard, upon which Mary Avenel, whose tone of feeling did not lead her to enter into counsel or society with the rest of the party, again retired to her solitary chamber. The rest of the family held counsel in the spence, Edward almost beside himself with rage, and the sub-prior in no small degree offended at the effrontery of Mysie Happer in attempting such a scheme, as well as at the mingled boldness and dexterity with which it had been executed. 
but neither surprise nor anger availed aught. The windows, well secured with iron bars for keeping assailants out, proved now as effectual for detaining the inhabitants within. The battlements were open, indeed, but without ladder or ropes to act as a substitute for wings there was no possibility of descending from them. They easily succeeded in alarming the inhabitants of the cottages beyond the precincts of the court, but the men had been called in to strengthen the guard for the night, and only women and children remained who could contribute nothing in the emergency, except their useless exclamations of surprise, and there were no neighbors for miles around. Dame Elspeth, however, though drowned in tears, was not so unmindful of external affairs, but that she could find voice enough to tell the women and children without to leave their skirling and look after the cows that she could not get minded, what with the awful distraction of her mind, what with that false slut having locked them up in their ain tower as fast as if they had been in the jeddart tollbooth. Meanwhile, the men finding other modes of exit impossible, unanimously concluded to force the doors with such tools as the house afforded for that purpose. These were not very proper for the occasion, and the strength of the doors was great. The interior one, formed of oak, occupied them for three mortal hours, and there was little prospect of the iron door being forced in double the time. While they were engaged in this ungrateful toil, Mary Avenel had with much less labour acquired exact knowledge of what the spirit had intimated in her mystic rhyme. On examining the spot, which the phantom had indicated by her gestures, it was not difficult to discover that a board had been loosened, which might be raised at pleasure. On removing this piece of plank, Mary Avenel was astonished to find the black book, well remembered by her as her mother's favourite study, of which she immediately took possession, with as much joy as her present situation rendered her capable of feeling. Ignorant in a great measure of its contents, Mary Avenel had been taught from her infancy to hold this volume in sacred veneration. It is probable that the deceased lady of Walter Avenel only postponed initiating her daughter into the mysteries of the divine word, until she should be better able to comprehend both the lessons which it taught, and the risk at which, in those times, they were studied. Death interposed, and removed her before the times became favourable to the reformers, and before her daughter was so far advanced in age as to be fit to receive religious instruction of this deep import. But the affectionate mother had made preparations for the earthly work which she had most at heart. There were slips of paper inserted in the volume, in which, by an appeal to and a comparison of various passages in Holy Writ, the errors and human inventions with which the Church of Rome had defaced the simple edifice of Christianity, as erected by its divine architect, were pointed out. These controversial topics were treated with a spirit of calmness and Christian charity, which might have been an example to the theologians of the period. But they were clearly, fairly, and plainly argued, and supported by the necessary proofs and references. Other papers there were which had no reference whatever to polemics, but were the simple effusions of a devout mind communing with itself. Among these was one frequently used, as it seemed from the state of the manuscript, on which the mother of Mary had transcribed and placed together those affecting texts to which the heart has recourse, in affliction, and which assures us at once of the sympathy and protection afforded to the children of the promise. In Mary Avenel's state of mind these attracted her above all the other lessons, which, coming from a hand so dear, had reached her at a time so critical, and in a manner so touching. 
She read the affecting promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, and the consoling exhortation, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. She read them, and her heart acquiesced in the conclusion. Surely this is the word of God. There are those to whom a sense of religion has come in storm and tempest. There are those whom it has summoned amid scenes of revelry and idle vanity. There are those, too, who have heard its still small voice amid rural leisure and placid contentment. But perhaps the knowledge which causeth not to err is most frequently impressed upon the mind during seasons of affliction. And tears are the softened showers which cause the seed of heaven to spring and take root in the human breast. At least it was thus with Mary Avenel. She was insensible to the discordant noise which rang below, the clang of bars and the jarring symphony of the levers which they used to force them, the measured shouts of the laboring inmates as they combined their strength for each heave, and gave time with their voices to the exertion of their arms, and their deeply muttered vows of revenge on the fugitives who had bequeathed them at their departure a task so toilsome and difficult. Not all this din combined in hideous concert, and expressive of aught but peace, love, and forgiveness, could divert Mary Avenel from the new course of study on which she had so singularly entered. The serenity of heaven, she said, is above me. The sounds which are around are but those of earth and earthly passion. And little impression was made on the iron grate, when they who laboured at it received a sudden reinforcement by the unexpected arrival of Christie of the Clint Hill. He came at the head of a small party, consisting of four horsemen, who bore in their caps the sprig of holly, which was the badge of Avenel. "'What ho, my masters,' he said, "'I bring you a prisoner.' "'You had better have brought us liberty,' said Dan of the Howlethurst. Christie looked at the state of affairs with great surprise. "'And I were to be hanged for it,' he said, "'as I may, for as little a matter, I could not forbear laughing at seeing men peeping through their own bars like so many rats in a rat-trap.' and he with the beard behind, like the oldest rat in the cellar. "'Hush, thou unmannered knave,' said Edward. "'It is the sub-prior, and this is neither time, place, nor company for your ruffian jests.' "'What ho! Is my young master Malapert?' said Christie. "'Why, man, were he my own carnal father, instead of being father to half the world, I would have my laugh out. And now it is over, I must assist you, I reckon, for you are setting very greenly about this gear. Put the pinch nearer the staple, man.' and hand me an iron crow through the grate, for that's the fowl to fly away with a wicket on its shoulders. I have broke into as many grates as you have teeth in your young head, ay, and broke out of them too, as the captain of the castle of Loch Maben knows full well." Christie did not boast more skill than he really possessed, for, applying their combined strength, under the direction of that experienced engineer, bolt and staple gave way before them, and in less than half an hour the grate, which had so long repelled their force, stood open before them. "'And now,' said Edward, "'to horse my mates, and pursue the villain Shafton.' "'Halt there,' said Christie of the Clinthill. "'Pursue your guest, my master's friend, and my own? There go two words to that bargain. What the foul fiend would you pursue him for?' "'Let me pass,' said Edward vehemently. "'I will be stayed by no man. The villain has murdered my brother.' "'What says he?' said Christie, turning to the others. "'Murdered? Who was murdered? And by whom?' "'The Englishman, Sir Piercy Shafton,' said Dan of the Howlethurst, "'has murdered young Halbert Glendinning yesterday morning, and we have all risen to the fray.' "'It is a bedlam business, I think,' said Christie. 
First I find you all locked up in your own tower, and next I am come to prevent you revenging a murder that was never committed. I tell you, said Edward, that my brother was slain and buried yesterday morning by this false Englishman. And I tell you, answered Christie, that I saw him alive and well last night. I would I knew his trick of getting out of the grave. Most men find it more hard to break through a green sod than a grated door. Everybody now paused, and looked on Christie in astonishment, until the sub-prior, who had hitherto avoided communication with him, came up and required earnestly to know whether he meant really to maintain that Halbert Glendinning lived. "'Father,' he said, with more respect than he usually showed to any one save his master, "'I confess I may sometimes jest with those of your coat, but not with you, because, as you may partly recollect, I owe you a life. It is certain as the sun is in heaven.' that Halbert Glendinning supped at the house of my master the Baron of Avenel last night, and that he came thither in company with an old man of whom more anon. "'And where is he now?' "'The devil only can answer that question,' replied Christie, "'for the devil has possessed the whole family, I think. He took fright, the foolish lad, at something or other which our Baron did in his moody humour. And so he jumped into the lake and swam ashore like a wild duck.' Robin of Redcastle spoiled a good gelding in chasing him this morning. "'And why did he chase the youth?' asked the sub-prior. "'What harm had he done?' "'None that I know of,' said Christie. "'But such was the baron's order, being in his mood, and all the world having gone mad, as I have said before.' "'Whither away so fast, Edward?' said the monk. "'To Coinanchion, father,' answered the youth. "'Martin and Dan, take pickaxe and mattock, and follow me if you be men.' "'Right,' said the monk, "'and fail not to give us instant notice what you find.' "'If you find aught there like Halbert Glendinning,' said Christie, hallooing after Edward, "'I will be bound to eat him unsalted.' "'Tis a sight to see how that fellow takes the bent. "'It is in the time of action men see what lads are made of. "'Halbert was aye skipping up and down like a roo, "'and his brother used to sit in the chimney-nook with his book and sick-like trash. "'But the lad was like a loaded hackbutt which will stand in the corner as quiet as an old crutch until you draw the trigger, and then there is nothing but flash and smoke. But here comes my prisoner, and setting other matters aside, I must pray a word with you, Sir Sub-Prior, respecting him. I came on before to treat about him, but I was interrupted with this fashery. As he spoke, two more of Avenel's troopers rode into the courtyard, leading betwixt them a horse, on which, with his hands bound to his side, sate the reformed preacher, Henry Warden End of chapter 30